Mr. Bundy, you've had a month to get this place in shape. Well, you've had your whole life to get in shape. You don't see me condemning you. That's it. Mr. Bundy, you are a slumlord. And by the power vested in me, by the Department of Housing, you are confined to this basement until you agree to make repairs. What? Let's rock. Thanks, Dad. Can I get a open? No Man Presents, live from the nudie bar, the Married with Children podcast. Welcome back to the Married with Children podcast. This is Luigi. And tonight I'm feeling generous, and I'm giving each of my co-hosts $300. That's Kinko's money. Forget it. What do you think? This stuff is free? Every $100 bill costs eight cents. (laughs) And this is Chris. And God is my witness. I will never be horny again. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a special guest co-host tonight. And someone you've heard on the podcast before. Alyssa. Hi. You're my bitch now. (laughs) today we are reviewing season 11 episode 12 grime and punishment original air date january 20th 1997 this is the third episode of 1997 and the final year of married with children director sam w orinder writers stephen faber and bob fisher special guest stars Marianne Moliere-Lee as health inspector. (laughs) All right, I I know I butchered that. And Lucky the Dog as Lucky the Dog. (laughs) Since Bud is actually earning money, Al starts charging rent for the basement. Bud and Al sign a lease and Bud pays his rent, after which he claims that the apartment is in need of repair. A health inspector declares the basement condemned and gives him a month to get the basement repaired. Al then is forced to wear an electronic neckband that prevents him from leaving the basement. Then, Al Bundy's under house arrest. Al, it's time for your conjugal visit. A brand new Married with Children following Ned and Stacy, Monday on Fox. Welcome back, Alyssa. How, how have you been? Good. Uh, it's super hot here. I'm just trying to get through it. <laughs> so how has your podcast been going? You know, as our... Fans should know, Alyssa is host of a podcast entitled When TV Was Great, and uh, you sort of go and look at different TV shows. Yeah, I don't do just one show. I do many different shows because it, you know, I don't do like a whole season arc, whatever they call it. It's going okay. I've been busy. (laughs) I'm trying to get back to it once or once or twice, you know, twice a month or something. Yeah, I mean, I've checked out uh, your podcast and I really enjoy it. So for all of our fans out there, you should check out Alyssa again. When TV was great, and uh, you can find it on most podcasting platforms, right? Yep. The title for this episode comes from Crime and Punishment, which is a novel by the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. It was first published in the literary journal The Russian Messenger in 12 monthly installments during 1866. It was later published in a single volume. It is the second of Dostoevsky's full-length novels, 
following his return from 10 years of exile in Siberia. Crime and Punishment is considered the first great novel of his mature period of writing. Since its publication, it has been acclaimed as one of the supreme achievements in world literature. Before we get into the episode, I'd say the writers of this episode, I think, went really heavy into literature yeah. and, and pop culture. I mean, this thing was just dripping with uh, references left and right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. More than normal. Yeah, you know, to to our audience, uh, we have seven pages of notes <laughs> just on references. So this is not going to be a short podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> it never is, though. <laughs> no, it, well, especially you know, in the last few seasons, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've talked about this, right, Chris? Yeah. You know, I'd say in the early seasons, and we we even had uh, Alex on when we talked about the animated series. Yeah, we talked about this briefly, but, you know, during his era of the show, Married with Children was not very pop culture heavy in terms of references. So you can get through a 22 minute review in 45 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half. We seem to go more like one hour and a half to two hours on average. And it's not because we're just more chatterboxes. It's just that (laughs) I think we have a lot more references. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So we're going to we're going to get through this. So we're going to try to do it uh, as quickly as possible. <laughs> All right. But uh, if uh, you're listening to this in the morning, you know, grab yourself a cup of coffee and <laughs> uh, get comfortable. If you listen to it at night, grab yourself a beer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. And if you're in Australia, make sure it's a VB. Right, Vincent? <laughs> Shout out to Vincent T, our uh, super fan in Australia. I like that. Shout out. So without further ado, let's get underway. So we open with Peg sitting on the couch, and Al enters and sits next to her. Okay, Peg, I tried to use our ATM card. I stuck it in, it spit it out. (laughs) And it laughed at me. Sound familiar? (laughs) How many times have I told you, Al? You gotta stick it in the right way. Pressing the right buttons wouldn't hurt either. We start out with some sex jokes, which go back and forth, the bantering. And, and you know, what I have to say is these are pretty creative. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so the first one's about, you know, sticking in ATM you know, card, <laughs> uh, sticking in a, uh, the debit card into the ATM, and it got spit out and it laughs at him, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. That's This is probably my favorite exchange of the whole episode. I laughed out loud at this. I stuck it in, it spit it out, and it (laughs) laughed at me. Sound familiar? (laughs) I I, I howled laughing at that. That was pretty good. It was was a predictable joke, too. When he said, stuck it in and it spit it out, Mm -hmm. you could almost, and it laughed at me, you could tell what Peg was going to (laughs) say. You know, but very funny. And, you know, one comment I want to make is, you know, Katie Seagal is smoking in this episode. I mean, she's like one of those people who really aged well, like a fine wine. I mean, mm-hmm. if you if you look at her and the way she looked like in season one, I mean, yeah. I think she looks better in in season eleven. I mean, you're talking about a difference of ten years, right? Yeah. And this yeah. is post baby as well. Yeah, yeah. She's had two. If I'm not mistaken, I think she's had two at this point, right? She had a stillbirth. That's right. Well, she had the stillbirth, but I thought she had one in season nine, and then. Oh, Didn't oh. she have one in season 10 also? Correct. Or am I, yeah. Am I? yeah, that's right. No, you're right. She had two, yeah. at least two children. So she went through three pregnancies. Correct. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she looks amazing. 
Yeah, she does. I mean, especially when she goes down into the basement, you know, later on. She uh, does yeah. look really hot. <laughs> <laughs> Peg, you're going to stop wasting all our money. I'm not wasting it. I'm investing it. Yes, Peg, and nothing appreciates faster than these little rascals' Last Supper commemorative plates. <laughs> Doesn't alfalfa make a haunting Judas? You know, these aren't available in any store. Whereas food, which often appears on the plate, is. Oh. Forgive him, Buckwheat. He knows not what he does. So now we talk about some Little Rascals commemorative plates. So I thought that was uh, pretty funny. <laughs> Our gang, known subsequently to television syndication as The Little Rascals or How Roaches Rascals, is an American series of comedy short films chronicling a group of poor neighborhood children and their adventures. Created by comedy producer and studio executive Hal Roach, the series was produced in various forms from 1922 to 1944 and is noted for showing children behaving in a relatively natural way. Roach and original director Robert F. McGowan worked to film the, uh, the unaffected, raw nuances apparent in regular children rather than have them imitate adult acting styles. The series broke new ground by portraying white and black children interacting together as equals. And, you know, I remember watching, like, Little Rascals a lot as a kid in the yeah. 80s. Like, that yeah, used to Saturday be... mornings. I remember, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, that used to play, like, an independent television stations. Mm -hmm. you know, really heavy. I remember it was probably more like Saturday afternoons or, like, mm -hmm. Sundays. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, and, and they were great. I mean, just great stuff. One of the main characters, you know, Peg makes reference to is Alfalfa. <laughs> <laughs> If I remember correctly, didn't we have, uh, weren't there other collector plates that Peg had in earlier seasons? I was going to say the same thing. What was it? Uh, that was t the TV guide collector plates. Oh, right? that's right. <laughs> that's right. The, the Did, covers. Didn't she uh, also get some Elvis collector plates, if I remember correctly? Uh, I think I so. I remember that wrong. I think. I think so. In the early season? Seasons? Uh, yeah. yeah. Like, yep. In the first three or four seasons. It yeah. was very early in the show. Yeah, like I said, you know, that's when you need Annabelle on, right? I mean, she'll yeah. tell you exactly, you know, season and episode number, right? I know. Our walking library, according to Michael <laughs> Moyer, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> Although, you know, my favorite word appears here again in this script, Chris, degenerate. We'll, we'll come up to that later, right? <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know, Alyssa, if you heard our interview with uh, Rich Scheidner, who played Luke Ventura. I haven't uh, heard it yet. No, well, he called me a degenerate nine-year-old, so <laughs> I, I, I wear that with pride. Awesome. It was a great interview. It was a lot of fun. Al tosses the plate to the armchair, and Peg picks it up and says that, oh, forgive him, Buckwheat, he knows not what he does. <laughs> you know, quoting the Bible. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit funny to hear Peg quote the Bible. <laughs> Buckwheat was William Billy Thomas Jr., who was a child actor best uh, known for the character of Buckwheat in uh, Our Gang mm -hmm. from 1934 until the series ends in 1944. Uh, he was a child of Los Angeles, and he was a pickaninny character. And pickaninny is a word applied originally by people of the West Indies to their babies and more widely referring to small children. It is a pigeon word form derived from the Portuguese pequenino, which means very small, a diminutive version of the word pequeño, 
-hmm. small also used in Spanish as pequeñito, and subsequently used in Canada and the U.S. as a racial slur, referring to a dark-skinned child of African descent. In modern sensibility, the term implies an archaic depiction or caricature used in a derogatory and racist sense. Peg, this home shopping has got to stop. Okay, Al. Where are you going? I am going to Shopaholics Anonymous. <laughs> but first, I need a new dress. So Peg says that she's um, going to go to Shopaholics Anonymous. <laughs> I need to go there. <laughs> So that's a pun on AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, which is an yep. international mutual aid fellowship with the stated purpose of enabling its members to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Mm -hmm. It uh, is the author of the famous 12-step program. Now, Kelly comes down the stairs. Hey. I need a hundred bucks for something really, really, really important. Uh, Pumpkin, you're not gonna buy another bridge, are you? <laughs> what would I do with six bridges? <laughs> no, it's for my acting career. I'm taking an improv class. <laughs> you know, improvisation where you make things up. <laughs> Why don't you make up a hundred bucks? Okay, thanks. Wait a minute. How am I supposed to make up money I don't have? Ask your mother. <laughs> now, she's never really won this color scheme, and I'm really liking her outfit. Uh, I don't yeah. Know. It was cute. <laughs> yeah, it has like, you know, that blue-greenish color tint on, with the pants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she looks great. She had it tied at the tummy, and that's what the style was at that um, around that time. That's right. Because I graduated from high school in 97, <laughs> and I remember that style real well. She looks good in anything, though, really. True. I mean, especially, especially when she's doing her acting later in the basement. Oh, yeah. She looks gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Some of her outfits there. She looked amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, now, it's interesting that she needs 100 bucks, right? <laughs> Al says that, what are you going to do, buy another bridge? And she says, well, she already has six. Yeah. <laughs> I guess five, and that would have been the sixth, but that's pretty <laughs> funny. I mean, that's an old joke about buying the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, and that joke was old back then, and it's still old. <laughs> But uh, since she's trying to take an improv class, the question is, is that is that with the Larry Storch School of Acting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, presumably. That was before this, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, uh, Larry Storch just died, uh, what, about a month That's ago? That's right. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, he passed away. Well, he was 99, wasn't he? From, yep, from God memory. bless. Made it almost to 100. Wow. Just like Betty White. Betty White almost made it to 100, too. That, that's right. She <laughs> yeah. missed it by a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I think what's funny is, you know, Al says, you know, why don't you make it up a hundred bucks, right? That was pretty funny. So she just walks around pretending she's got the hundred bucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. So now Bud comes in and, you know, we have some banter between brother and sister. Great news, everybody. It's official. Ah, Illinois finally recognized the sacred bond between you and your hand. <laughs> Just like the sacred bond between you and anyone with a shiny new penny. <laughs> so we talk about, you know, the sacred bond between you and your hand. Yeah, that, that made me laugh out loud. That was hilarious. That, the see, state that was of a, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, that was a good line right there. That was a good ride right there. Chris, we talked about this when we reviewed the last episode that we did. That was episode nine, uh, Crimes Against Obesity. Y you know, the... 
the style of writing in season 11 is set up joke, set up joke, but there's really not sort of more like the type of comedy that we saw in early seasons where it's like yeah. there's a, a setup and then the joke happens like five minutes later or at the end of the episode, yeah. right? You know, that does the payoff. So yeah. uh, it's all very rapid fire, but I will say it is fresh. I thought the writing was actually very snappy on this one. It was. Yeah, they, they definitely hit some homers. Uh, you know, I, I keep using the, the baseball analogy. You know, I always say, you know, winning baseball is you hit singles and you, d- you hit doubles. Singles and doubles win baseball games versus going up to bat and, and swinging for the fences every single time. You know, like one of the habits I feel like the show gets into during this era is it feels like they're swinging for the homer every single time without getting the, the single and the double first, you know. This episode definitely has some homers in it. I'll give it that. Bud has some really exciting news that he's actually earning money. Dad, I just got a big infomercial for one of my new clients. Hey, 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 hey now. Does that mean that you're making money? Well, not like you tried to do at Kinko's, but... That that would have worked if I had sprung for the color copies. Anyway, I'm earning my money. Well, son, if you're earning money, that means you can pay some rent. Rent? Now, son, it was one thing when you were in school, which, by the way, I never approved of. (laughs) Why me? Why don't you charge Kelly rent? Or mom? Well, son, Kelly hasn't slept here in years. (laughs) And if I try to charge your mother rent, she might expect... things. No way am I paying rent for that dump. Well, then you know the drill, bud. best shopping carts are at food town <laughs> this is something so he's actually a bundy child <laughs> or a bundy that's earning money i mean because even al we know is not really earning much right <laughs> so the crux of the whole episode is that now bud needs to pay rent so i want to throw this out there i mean for those of us that maybe like we're living at home past our 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 early 20s did anyone have to pay rent yes I did when I wasn't going to school. If I did, if I decided not to go to school, I'd have to pay rent. Okay. In college, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, what about yourself, Chris? I did not. I sort of had a weird, uh, weird childhood, I guess you could say. But I, I moved out in, in high school. I kind of had wow. a weird situation home. I moved out then, so I paid rent, but it was to an apartment. <laughs> I had roommates, so. <laughs> Paid a different type of rent. <laughs> okay, interesting. All right. Yeah, you know, uh, being Italian-American, we don't pay rent. We pay it in other ways. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, you know, when you have a mother who, like, cooks and cleans and does your laundry, I mean, why would you want to leave? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bud doesn't really get that. I mean, he's pretty much in a dilapidated uh, basement apartment, right, with substandard wiring and everything else, so... <laughs> this is going to be interesting. You know, something I never really thought about till now. How come Bud didn't move back into his bedroom now that Peg's mom uh, is no longer living with them? You know, that is a great question. And I think that the answer is, is that he has a little more privacy in the basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's funny. He's like socially inept with the ladies, but he gets some really good looking women. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he took Ariel down there a handful of times. It's just, I, I, it never dawned on me till now. You know, the whole reason they moved down there is because Peg's mom moved in with them in season 10. 
Well, Peg's mom is long gone at this point. She moved out into last season or towards the end of last season, but he's still living down there. <laughs> We're halfway through season 11 now. You know, so there's this reference to Kinko's. Now, Kinko's back in the 90s was really big, although, like, it actually merged with FedEx. So, Chris, you want to tell us about that? Sure. Paul Orfali, whose nickname was Kinko because of his curly hair, founded the company as Kinko's in 1970. Its first copy shop, which Orfale opened with a sidewalk copy machine, was in the college community of Isla Vista, California, next to the campus of the University of California, Santa Barbara. That's where I'm from. That's crazy. Oh, nice. <laughs> he left the company in 2000 following a dispute with the investment firm Clayton, Dubillier, and Rice, to which he had sold a large stake in the company three years earlier. Kinko's played a significant role in the development of the American counterculture in the 1980s and 1990s. In her study of the role of xerography in urban cultures in this period, the anthropologist Kate Eichborn recounts, at its height of popularity between the late 1980s and mid-1990s, Kinko's outlets in urban centers across North America were catch basins for writers, artists, anarchists, punks, insomniacs, graduate students, do-it-yourself bookmakers, zenisters, obsessive-compulsive hobbyists, scam artists, people living on the street, and people just living on the edge. <laughs> Whether you are promoting a new band or publishing a pamphlet on do-it-yourself gynecology or making a fake <laughs> ID for an underage friend, Kinko's was the place to be. It's now owned and operated and called FedEx Office. <laughs> And, you know, I'll tell you, like, there was a Kinko's uh, right down the block from where I went to college. And I went to college in the East Village of New York City. Mm -hmm. And pretty much, yeah, <laughs> writers, artists, anarchists, punks. I mean, it was it was the <laughs> gamut. Didn't and they have computers there? Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. You know, because if you remember back then, if you needed to print something out, like, let's say you had a banner or something, you put it like on a floppy. <laughs> you know, because remember, these are the days even before flash drives. Right. Um, you had floppy drives and you even had those Zip 100 drives. That's like around <laughs> 1998, 1999. And I remember like, you know, you'd go in there, there'd be a computer, you'd open up like whatever piece of software you needed, because generally they came with it. Mm -hmm. And bingo, like print whatever the hell you needed. I remember like I used to have to bind reports. So uh, they had like book bind, like, like book binding. So let's say you had like 100 pages. It would have like a, a clear cover with like a, a black plastic mat on the, you know, on the back, it, it, you know, yeah. and that was a place to be. Yeah, that's really my only memory of it is going there to print stuff. Keep in mind, I was in junior high in the late 1990s, so right. I definitely needed to print something for school. Kinko's was the place to be. I still remember exactly where it, you know, where it was in my area. It's, uh, you know, like you said earlier, it's a FedEx office now. I mean, it sort of makes sense because then it's like, well, you know, you all those cop like, you know, now we don't use as much paper as we used to. Yeah. But but you still need things printed out. I mean, hey, like you have that available and, you know, you could ship things. So it sort of made sense when FedEx did that because that's where you can go nowadays. But just interesting how much a part of cul our culture it was. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Al goes there to try to make money. Right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. He tried to print the $100 bills in black and white because it costs more money <laughs> to print them in color. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
But now what I find interesting is when Bud refuses to pay, Al says, well, you know the drill. And it's like he immediately just goes to the closet and Al takes the stick with the hanky on it. It's almost like he was already prepared. I mean, like that's like sitcom humor right there, right? You know, it's not like they like they had it, they cut it so that he's walking down the stairs like later with like a, a bag or something. So I don't know, like that's like the goofiness part of it, you know, Chris. Because I know you mentioned that about how you thought the episode was a little goofy. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get too much into it now. I'll talk about it in my review at the end. But I just I feel like this episode is just a little bit too goofy and a little bit too corny. But I'll get more into that later. I don't disagree. But the thing is, is that that to me is like sitcom logic right there. Yeah. Right. Uh, You know, I mean, it could have been done better, like a little more realistic, but that's not what they were aiming for here. Al says that the best shopping carts are at Food Town. (laughs) So I guess he has some experience. (laughs) Food Town is a northeastern U.S. supermarket cooperative founded in 1955 by Twin County Grocers in New Jersey. Currently, there are 66 Food Town stores in New Jersey, New York, and eastern Pennsylvania. Food Town's corporate offices are located in Island, New Jersey. Much like other retail cooperatives such as ShopRite, each Food Town is independently owned and operated, with some owners operating multiple stores. I have a note from Annabelle. It's also the name of a now phased-out New Zealand supermarket chain. Foodies, we're the store with food and heart. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if Michael Moy was listening to this, he must think we're all insane, you know, to, to remember all this stuff, right? But, but that's yep. the best episode of the show ever. <laughs> yep, that's Sorry, my favorite. <laughs> this being uh, season 11, we now go to the opening credits, like three and a half minutes in. Yeah, I noticed that. It was weird. Well, that was uh, the, the format of season 11. There's a, there's a cold start and then the opening credits. Act one, scene one. So Al is sitting on the couch watching TV and Kelly comes downstairs. Hey, Daddy. Yeah! I need to do some homework for my improv class. So give me a situation. Daddy's watching the baseball game. Got it. Now daddy's mowing the lawn. Damn lawn, damn kids, damn wife. Forget it, Peg, no sex tonight. just as well. <laughs> Kelly wants Al to give her a situation because she needs to do some homework. Right? Mm-hmm. And Al just sort of says, well, you know, daddy's watching the baseball game. And I have to admit, you know, Kelly really does a magnificent impersonation of Al. Yeah, she does. Yeah, it was pretty funny. So then Al catches on and he says, all right, now daddy's mowing the lawn. <laughs> So she's like, damn lawn, damn kids, damn wife. (laughs) And then says, forget it, Peg, no sex tonight. (laughs) Improv class. Best money I ever spent, with all due respect to the uh, My Three Sons Holy Trinity serving trip. (laughs) 
Peggy says, well, improv class. And Al says, yes, it's the best money I've ever spent. With all due respect to the My Three Sons Holy Trinity serving trip. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just one thing. Uh, do you guys remember the other time Kelly imitated Al? It was the episode with when she was a waitress. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. It was either that one or when she worked at the TV world place. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It was when she was a waitress. She comes home from work and she yeah. starts talking about how there's three fat women orbiting around her or something yeah. like that. And she puts her hands down her, down her pants. Yeah. It was great. I loved Pe- that. Peg was like, who is it that she reminds me of? <laughs> <laughs> My Three Sons is an American sitcom. The series had a long run from 1960 through 1972. ABC broadcast the show from 1960 through 1965, and then the series moved to CBS until the end of its run on April 13, 1972. My Three Sons chronicles the life of a widower and an aeronautical engineer, Stephen Douglas, played by Fred McMurray, as he raises his three sons. Now, if I'm not mistaken, William Frawley was in that sitcom. That's the guy who played Fred Mertz yeah, on I Love Lucy. Yeah. Right? How about that? Yeah, way after Lucy. Well, not way after, like maybe five years after, maybe less than that. Yeah, you know, I I can't say I've watched many of them, but I I feel like, you know, I remember, I think in the 80s, there were reruns of the show. I've Um, never seen it. But maybe I saw like one or two episodes again. Not as memorable to me as, let's say, I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners, but... uh, I've never seen The Honeymooners either. Really? Yeah. Now you're missing out on something. I know. I've heard they're great. That is the best of the best. Creme de la creme. Better than Lucy? I think so. Wow. That is a bold statement. (laughs) I think so. Well, I mean, you have to understand it's a different type of comedy. True. Lucy was slapstick. Do you have slapstick in both? But really what I say is like the Bundys are really the descendants of the Cramdens. Lucy really always like you know, they were like a loving couple and like they yeah. just had hijinks amongst themselves. This is like a couple that loved each other, but they were really like nasty to each other at times, <laughs> you know, really like sharp tongue. And yeah. you know, that that's where I mean, like, I feel like the, the Bundys are the descendants of the Bunkers and the Cramdens. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. 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 That, that's the way that I look at it. Yeah. So now Bud comes in. Hey, son, where you been? I slept in Lucky's doghouse. Do you have any idea what it's like sleeping with somebody who's constantly panting and licking you and wagging their tail all in your face? Oh. Welcome to my world, son. This isn't fair, Dad. He didn't charge me anything when I lived upstairs. Well, that's because that was a less desirable location. That was uh, near your mother. <laughs> Welcome to my world, son. <laughs> yeah, licking, uh, wagging your tail in your face, etc. <laughs> and we find out that Al has been keeping tabs of how much Bud Bundy has cost him his entire life. All right, fine. How much rent do you think would be fair? Son, I got that all figured out. And it's based on a very complicated formula that I've been working on since the day that you were born. Oh, look, it's Bud's baby book. Oh. Hey, I didn't know you guys kept one of those for me. Well, oh. sure. Oh, now look at this. Baby's first expense. Yeah, one broken condom. Oh. <laughs> Bud, 
blood, your first pacifier. Suck. <laughs> you know, if I, I think if we gave him a little more rubber when he was teething, he, he wouldn't be dating it now. Uh <laughs> now, I, I will say that baby book was very clever. <laughs> the best part was the, the shopping scanner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think the, the to me, like, you know, uh, before that was the funny thing was the baby's first expense. It's like, yep, one broken condom. Broken condom. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, and the thing is now we have a continuity issue here, right? Oh, yeah. Now, on the old insurance dodge in season seven, Al says it costs more than the condom I should have used the night you were conceived. <laughs> So we have a little bit of a contradiction here, right? Yes, we do. And maybe it's that, you know, Al forgot about it because at least he, on the baby book, he actually has the the condom, you know, taped into it, right? So, <laughs> so he actually has the evidence in front of him, right? Do, do people actually do, I know people make baby books, but would someone actually do that in real life? Put a condom, a broken condom in a book? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. I, that's pretty nasty, isn't it? <laughs> It's almost like in the Blues Brothers. It's like one prophylactic and then one soiled. Yeah, that's, that's nasty. If anyone out there has ever actually done this, comment in the com- leave a comment. In the comment curious, yeah. I want to talk to you. <laughs> then we find out that his first pacifier was a brown sock. <laughs> and although, like, this is a funny line, Al says, "I think if we'd given him a little more rubber when he was teething, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be dating it now." That was. Funny. <laughs> funny yep you know and kudos to david faustino i mean like you know they're just like giving his character (laughs) i mean like they're making him like so i don't know what the word would be i mean like so pathetic yeah Yeah. well they always do though i mean this is a little more but (laughs) and then peggy makes a comment about her uh, bud's first words (laughs) look bud your first words Bud need food. (laughs) Bud want food. Ouch. Nobody likes a whiny baby. (laughs) And they're saying that baby need food, baby want food. Ouch. Bud want food. Right, but like in other words, Bud's speaking about himself in the third person, like like children do. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, another comment here from Annabelle, who really pays attention, she said in season seven, episode twelve, Christmas, his first words were "Playboys Hooters, Playboys Playboys Hooters, Hooters, Playboys Hooters, Playboys Hooters." (laughs) I love that line. So again, you know, a little bit a question here on continuity. There's always continuity, though, in season 11. Season 11 was pretty notorious for that. Yeah. The <laughs> thing was, when we reviewed Crimes Against Obesity, that was actually one episode where there was a continuity was actually honored. Right, Chris? Absolutely. Yeah, I give them a lot of credit on that one. They did a really good job there. Yeah, so let's see. You know, we reviewed that a few weeks ago. And I think which like, one that is. That, that's the one when he's put on trial <laughs> by, by, by the uh, large women. Yes. And the thing is, I guess because it was flashbacks, they had to maybe honor the continuity. But that was interesting, you know, and here it's like continuity's out again. And we know why they just want to be able to get the joke and they're funny. But we do have to point that out. (laughs) So now that barcode scanner, right? Yeah, that was so funny. 
Why aren't there any pictures of me in here? Well, frankly, son, you were one ugly baby. <laughs> Diaper's face. <laughs> That's because he was colicky. Oh, now, son, it's all here. Every fond moment and every cent that you cost me from the time you were born. <laughs> One soda. That's 65 cents. You still writing it all down? Oh, no, we're way beyond that. When I was in college, one of my professors, uh, his wife had a baby, and we gave him congratulations and whatnot. And like he just sort of like looks at me and my friends. He's like, "Do you know how much a baby costs nowadays?" <laughs> we sort of looked at him. He's like, "What?" He's like, "You realize by the time you know my baby you know graduates from college, and at this point the baby should have graduated from college, <laughs> it's like it's going to cost me a million dollars over the life, <laughs> yeah. over, over the baby." I was like. And, like, we were just, like, trying to wrap my head around it. And, you know, when you're 20 years old, you don't think about stuff exactly. like that. But now, like, I'm like, oh, a million bucks? Oh, I think it might be more than that. <laughs> <With> inflation. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah, it's crazy high now. Yeah. I can't even imagine. This, this is insane. Okay. Okay, fine. I'll pay you 200 a month, but I want to make it legal. Here's a check. And here's a lease. That's a deal. Great. Now that I'm paying you, you can make the repairs. What repairs? Look, I know my rights. As your legal tenant, I can report you to the housing authority. And as your legal father, I give you five across the eyes. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with that basement. Now, here's the thing. So Bud agrees to pay 200 a month in rent. That still sounds like a deal, don't you think? I don't know. I think that sounds like a lot for that place. It's just a room. Well, maybe. I don't know. Well, I, I guess, guess we need Jamie's inflation calculator, right? Yeah, I was going to say, let's let's adjust for inflation. Let's see. All inflation. Right. So $200 in 1997 would be the same as $369 now. In all honesty, I mean... If you're talking room and board, and I assume uh, utilities included, that's actually really low. <laughs> yeah, you know? it is. I mean, hell, I wish I could find a room to rent for $370. <laughs> I'd sell my house. <laughs> I'd just go rent a room somewhere for $370 a month. <laughs> so here's like a, something I got to be a little nitpicky about. Bud says to Al, as your legal tenant, I can report you to the housing authority. <laughs> Chris, take it away on that one. So the Chicago Housing Authority is a municipal corporation that oversees public housing within the city of Chicago. The agency's board of commissioners is appointed by the city's mayor and has a budget independent from that of the city of Chicago. The CHA is the largest rental landlord in Chicago with more than 50,000 households. CHA owns over 21,000 apartments, 9,200 units reserved for seniors and over 11,400 units in family and other to housing types. It also oversees the administration of 37,000 Section 8 vouchers. One of the things in the notes here, and I, and I totally agree, and I'll take this a little further, but since this is a private residence, technically the housing authority would have no jurisdiction over the apartment in Al's basement. And, and I think therein lies the problem that, that I, well, one of the major problems I have with this episode is I just feel like the whole plot of 
Al being confined to the basement by the Chicago Housing Authority, I, I think I find that to be just kind of outlandish because <laughs> they would have zero jurisdiction. I guess I equate it to like if I were renting out one of my guest rooms here at my home and it was infested with roaches or rats or something, <laughs> the Houston Housing Authority would have no authority to come in and confine me to the bedroom. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, maybe yeah. my tenant could sue me or something for being a, a slumlord. And, you know, and you do have to provide a tenant with a livable condition, but the housing authority wouldn't have the authority to come in and confine me to the bedroom. Like, <laughs> and maybe I'm just thinking too much into it. You know, I realize this is a sitcom and it's a comedy, but I don't know. <laughs> I just found the overall plot in this episode to be kind of outlandish frankly <laughs> well like but, so was building a doghouse with the permit <laughs> that is true that is true fair point <laughs> we went through that when we reviewed that episode yep, yeah you're right Alyssa. yeah fair but point. uh but 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 you know again and this was one of those things that we needed to uh point out this basement is condemned <laughs> On what possible basis? For one thing, I'm standing in raw sewage. <laughs> Ma'am, your control problems are not my concern. What about these rats? Well, how, how did they get in here? They're trying to get out. <laughs> this wiring is clearly substandard. Well, now that's impossible. I did the work myself. <laughs> Mr. Bundy, you've had a month to get this place in shape. Well, you've had your whole life to get in shape. You don't see me condemning you. That's it. Mr. Bundy, you are a slumlord. And by the power vested in me, by the Department of Housing, you are confined to this basement until you agree to make repairs. What? Well, what if there's a fire? Those wires are clearly substandard. <laughs> what, what, what the hell are you doing? Electronic mobility limitation device. It'll prevent you from leaving the premises. Much like your hips in a turnstile. If you come within two feet of this device or ten feet from it, you will be shocked. Yeah, right. Like that scares me. Like this car is going to keep me in this hellhole. Now, Annabelle has a comment here. So Stephen Scott, he may recognize the housing inspector lady from Third Rock from the Sun. So she played Lucy. And this is Marianne Muller-Lily. Sorry if I butchered that. But she has 233 acting credits all the way uh, up till this past year, beginning in 1972. Wow. So she has had a very long and prolific career. Kind of like Griff. <laughs> and she, uh, of course, uh, gets insulted by Al Bundy, but she gets the better of him by putting that uh, collar around him, which she calls him a slumlord. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, the wiring is substandard. Now, uh, if you remember, Chris, when we reviewed that episode with my friend Crazy Mike, the electrician, uh -huh. mm -hmm. <laughs> We know that the wiring was substandard because uh, Al did it himself, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, they sort of ripped up all the wiring in the house at some point. 
so now that Al gets this thing on his neck, he can't move. He can't be, get two feet close to the box and more than 10 feet away from the box, right? So now we get all the antics with Al getting shocked. Now, Al gets electrocuted in the following episodes. Who'll Stop the Rain, oh. High IQ, and A Shoe Room with a View. Oh, boy. Is that all? It feels like he's been electrocuted a lot more than that. <laughs> well, this would be the fourth time. But, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And, again, these are Annabelle's notes, so I'm not going to question them. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another little tidbit. Originally, Bud says that, you know, the housing authority has jurisdiction. But then uh, the inspector says it's from the Department of Housing. Hmm. So, again... Tech, I mean, I know it's a very fine point, but usually it's going to be one or the other, right? It's very specific. Right. Neither of which would have any authority to say what's right or what's not right in a private residence, you know? Yeah. So now we cut to Bud Kelly down in the basement, and Al's trying to get some food. <laughs> Despite three hours of negative conditioning, the subject continues to go for the food. What an idiot. You know, I think Daddy needs some exercise. No, we are not letting him out. Oh, no, no, no. I was just thinking about getting him one of those, you know, those giant hamster wheels. Kelly, where, where do you think you're going to get one of those? Duh, at the giant hamster store. Note to journal regarding long-term subject. <laughs> IQ still plummeting. <laughs> no sign of bottom. <laughs> and what's interesting is they have a little sign next to him, this impossible tool, and he's trying to reach and gets himself electrocuted. He just keeps doing it without like picking up the tool and you know getting the food over. It's almost like he was a lab rat. <laughs> I missed that somehow. That's funny. What was the food? I was trying to figure it out. It was a hamburger? It looked like it. Yeah. Kelly just I guess she's like in stupid overdrive in season eleven, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we talk about the giant hamster wheels, and then there's the talk about the um, Bud makes a comment that uh, her IQ is still plummeting. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the things I have in my notes too. Is uh, Kelly is just like insanely dumb now. Like she's gotten dumber and dumber. Kelly can be dumb, but she could also be vindictive. Yeah, like I mean, she knows when she's being had. Yeah. And I sort of like my problem that I have with. Kelly right now is that it's, it's almost like she's just like not like nothing you know? <laughs> she's yeah. not even that anymore I mean what do you think Alyssa I she has her moments when she's actually she is smart but I think you're right I think season 11 just kind of is kind of car more cartoony more goofy right I, I, I can definitely see that in this episode I, I mean it, to defend it a little bit I think there's cornier episodes than this true <laughs> like when Al falls off the roof, uh, uh, what is that one? The one the, where they went like full cartoon, where he was falling off the roof, fixing the uh, the satellite. Yep. 
Yeah, that was kind of corny. Yeah, and by the way, we have a crazy Ahmed box sighting in the basement too. This episode. <laughs> that's, so that, that's a great callback. Dad, are you gonna make the repairs? No, you degenerate little ingrate. <laughs> hey now, that language might have been okay when I was a child, but now that I'm paying rent, I expect to be treated like an adult. An adult? You still live at home! <laughs> you still work at the mall! Yeah, well, I must have paid off because I'm up for assistant manager. <laughs> if I can ever get out of here. Well, you can get out of here when you make the repairs. No way! It's a matter of principle. Maybe I can bribe, bribe my way out. How about, a uh, hundred bucks? That's Kinko's money. Forget it. <laughs> okay. Two hundred. Three hundred. No way! <laughs> What, do you think this stuff is free? Every $100 bill costs eight cents. Where's the original? Huh? I left the original in the copy machine. Idiocy, obviously hereditary. In females. So there's this whole thing about Kinko's, you know, we talked about, you know, the <laughs> he he forgot the hundred dollar bill in the copy machine, right? <laughs> he tries to get out and gets That's electrocuted. So funny. <laughs> Where's the original? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, isn't that something that he would Al would totally do? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean he's he's a loser, right? Well, he's not very smart either. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, but it's like, you know, I mean, but he has his moments, but... He does have his moments, you know. just like Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> like father, like daughter. Right, but of course, like, you know, he can't win. Right. right? You know, one of the things I put in my notes, it, it was about Kelly, and, you know, we spoke about this in length before. When you're making a, a, a dumb character, I guess, on a show, it takes two things to make it work. One, you have to have great writing, and two, you have to have a great actor or actress. Well, they've got a great actress. Christina Applegate is the best in the business. She's a master. at She's a brilliant actress at playing dumb. In, in season 11, the writing for her is not great. <laughs> so, and I don't, I don't blame Christina Applegate for that because, as I always say, you know, no amount of great acting can make up for poor writing. I just feel like they give her tough stuff to work with during this era of the show. And it ends up not being like it's hard to describe, like uh, just the difference between Kelly now and the difference from of her two or three or four seasons ago. There's a big difference in the writing. I don't disagree. And, you know, what I will say, like, you know, when when she goes into the basement and like plays those characters, the historical characters, Mm -hmm. you really see Christina Applegate's talent. Yeah. 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 You can see her talent there. No doubt about that. But when she like when she's in the background pretending to push a lawnmower and stuff, I don't know. That was a little too corny for me. (laughs) And I blame I blame the writers for that. (laughs) Oh, Al, you promised to take out the garbage. (laughs) Gee, I'm sorry, Peg. I'd love to, but one more shock and my liver will be medium well. (laughs) But then who's gonna rub my bottom? I'm sorry, but the law is the law. I did the crime, so I should do the time. (laughs) Now, there's one line here as well that Al says, which I thought was very uh, funny. 
it's very subtle. He says, I did the crime, so I, I should do the time. Uh, so that is uh, a line from the theme song from Beretta, which is uh, sung by Sammy Davis Jr. It's time for no man to take a little break in the jiggly room. I'm the DJ, and I'm going to play a little bit of music that was on this week's episode of Marry With Children. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Hmm. I always wonder where that came from. Yeah, that's another one of those cop dramas from the 70s. Yeah. Great TV show. (laughs) Jefferson! I'm stuck! (laughs) Well, divorce her. Just leave me out of it. (laughs) I came here to rescue you, but... But there's a... Really big spider coming right towards me. Hey, getting stuck down here is the best thing that ever happened to me. What are you talking about, Al? This is a prison. This isn't a prison. Upstairs is a prison. That's hard time. Warden Red always threatening to stick me in the hot box. So we have this one line which is pretty funny. It says, Warden Red is always threatening to stick me in the hot box. And that's a line from The Longest Yard from 1974. Really? That's a week in the hot box, uh, which Eddie Albert, who played the warden, uh, Rudolph Hazen in that movie. It was a great film. Yeah, they had a um, they had a remake probably about uh, about 15 years or so ago. It had uh, Burt Reynolds, Chris Rock, Wahlberg. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Nelly, the whole crew. You know, it was really was it good. Mark oh no, was Adam, it? Sa- Adam Sandler. Adam yeah, Adam Sandler. Sandler. Sandler right. Yeah. But uh, but like I said, I I don't think that it uh, I paled in comparison to the original. Yeah. It's I, I feel the case. <laughs> Bud brings Marcy down into the basement to torture Al. <laughs> okay, let me get this straight. Al is stuck here. <laughs> and I get to torture him. <laughs> Here's another hundred. Now you enjoy yourself. But remember, you got to be out by two. You'd be surprised at how many people want to torture Dad. No, I wouldn't. So, Dad, are you sure you're having fun? Yep. Well, in that case, let's play Wheel of Torture. (laughs) Our first contestant hails from next door. She's a banker, an avid golfer, and uh, quite a screamer in bed. You live next door. You hear things. Oh, what you gonna do, bud? Peck my eyes out? <laughs> Sit on me till I crack. <laughs> now, did I ever tell you about how I became a feminist? 
It all started when I read The Feminine Mystique and I threw away my lady chick. Yeah, that's two mistakes. <laughs> Bud got paid for that. Correct. She paid him for that. That's right. <laughs> money off this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's one person who would pay to do that, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I'll, I'll always I'll give credit uh, to Bud for him is, man, he always knows how to hustle. He can figure out a way to, to make money. You know what yeah. I mean? He's a hustler. <laughs> so so he grabs a poster of a girl in a bikini to hide his face, and he pokes out two holes. Yeah. <laughs> now, we have a note from Annabelle here. So the picture that Jefferson is hiding behind is a picture of Brooke Burke. Oh, I thought she looked familiar. Right. And... Um, Interestingly, a friend of mine is friends with Brooke Burke. So I see pictures of her on Facebook, personal pictures of her on Facebook very frequently lately. But yeah, she still looks the same. Was she a model? What was she? So she was a model in her 20s. So back uh, during this time period, uh, she was a model uh, because Brooke is now uh, 50. Yeah, and, I'm looking her But uh, she was a television personality, so her first big show was... Baywatch? No, uh, Wild On, where, like, I guess she was more like... It was a travel show back uh, in oh, the Oh, she's late a 90s. host. Okay, yeah, I... I okay. And then she... Uh, I know, like, more recently she did, in the mid-2000s, it was... Um, she's Got the Look or something like that. It was one of those... Yeah. Shows, but she's like been like a personality, but she really started out as a model. Yeah. So that was like a pinup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so Ted McGinley's behind that. <laughs> you can and, see it dies. Uh, yeah. And uh, of course, uh, Marcy throws a hammer at it, you know, oh, I guess s- smashes him in the face, right? Did you ever notice how the nipples on that poster seem to follow you around the room? <laughs> Degrading to women. <laughs> and he says we're going to play Wheel of Torture, which is a, 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 a pun on Wheel of Fortune, right? Mm-hmm. And who from Wheel of Fortune was on Married with Children? Vanna White. Vanna right. White. Coco. Coco. <laughs> yep. So now, you know, Marcy, she doesn't have to do much to, to torture Al. It's not like she has to poke at him, right? Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> my true awakening occurred when I decided to take charge of my own orgasms. <laughs> and oh, well, how my womanhood blossomed. Oh, God, how my stomach is churning. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have done it without the support of my women's group. One day... We all sat in a circle, naked, but non-judgmental. <laughs> and then all six of us pulled out our hand mirrors. <laughs> and guess what happened? <laughs> 42 years of bad luck. <laughs> that day inspired an epic poem. I think that I shall never see my G-spot smiling back at me. <laughs> so, it's like, did I tell you how I became a fest- feminist? It started when I read The Feminine Mystiques and threw away my ladyship. Oh, my God. <laughs> so tell us about The Feminine Mystique, Chris. 
The Feminine Mystique is a book by Betty Friedan that is widely credited with sparking the beginning of the second wave of feminism in the United States. It was published on February 19, 1963 by W.W. W. Norton. The phrase Feminine Mystique was created by Friedan to show the assumptions that women would be fulfilled from their housework, marriage, sexual lives, and children. It was said that women who were actually feminine should not have wanted to work, get an education, or have political opinions. Frieden wanted to prove that women were unsatisfied but could not voice their feelings. During 1964, The Feminine Mystique became the best-selling nonfiction book with over one million copies sold. In the book, Frieden challenged the widely shared belief in the 1950s that fulfillment as a woman had only one definition for American women after 1949, the house, housewife mother. What Marcy's saying is she read The Feminine Mystique and she threw away the lady shick, which is an electric razor for women. <laughs> so in other words, she, she hasn't shaved since she read The Feminine Mystique. <laughs> yep. The poem that Marcy reads is a pun on a fam very famous poem by Joyce Kilmer. And the poem goes like this. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair. Upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. And that's for you, Stephen Scott. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so tell us a little bit about Joyce Kilmer. Joyce Kilmer was born way back in 1886 and passed away in 1918. So talking a century and a half ago now for when she was born. She was an American, actually, am I saying this right? Yeah, Joyce Kilmer was an American writer and poet mainly remembered for a short poem titled Trees in 1913, which was published in the collection Trees and Other Poems in 1914. Though a prolific poet whose works celebrated the common beauty of the natural world as well as the Roman Catholic religious faith, Kilmer was also a journalist, literary critic, lecturer, and editor. At the time of his deployment uh, to Europe during World War I, Kilmer was considered the leading American Roman Catholic poet and lecturer of his generation, whose critics often compared to British contemporaries G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Bellick. So yeah, my apologies. Uh, beginning there, Joyce is actually a guy. <laughs> really? So, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I, I, I think it's funny, you know, how it says, I think I shall never see my Jeet spot smiling back at me. <laughs> okay, right? I, I, wanted, I watched this episode with my husband and I said, oh, I can't believe they said G-spot on TV. Like, you can't say that anymore. You cannot say that anymore on TV. Unless you're watching like a cable channel. <laughs> no, seriously, I don't think you can say that anymore. I don't know, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> it's just interesting. So they took a guy's poem and flipped it to a girl, right, into a woman. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I I don't know. But again, whoever's doing this, I mean, these are very literate, um, you know, these are very literate writers. Yeah. Who are, Right. I mean, Michael Moy in in our interview with him, you know, he did say it's like, you know, we had some very literary writers and we had some very lowbrow writers as well. <laughs> so there was there was a good mix of that, you know, be between uh the two. <laughs>
So I guess as Al is, uh, you know, listening to Marcy say the poem, he's biting into this uh, uh, wrench. <laughs> so it looks like he's chewed through it, like when they cut to the next scene. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Got to give you credit, big guy. Can't believe that didn't break you. <laughs> you forget who I'm married to. Torture is my middle name. <laughs> well, then, let's meet guest number two. She's an aspiring actress, an annoying sister, and she's just mastered the alphabet. <laughs> Kelly Bundy, come on down! How, Daddy? <laughs> Bud does a Price is Right, and he says, Kelly Bundy, come on down. <laughs> and here comes Kelly, and she does uh, three skits. So the first one, she's dressed up as Pocahontas. Kelly will now improv the history of the United States. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> is that your real name, John Smith? Me think I'm this one big kiss-off. Sorry, Chief Thunderpants. <laughs> Pocahontas is a 1995 American animated musical romantic drama film loosely based on the life of the Ameri Native American woman Pocahontas. It portrays a fictionalized account of her historical encounter with Englishman John Smith and the Jamestown settlers that arrived from the Virginia Company. Obviously, this is Kelly's in, in, uh, interpretation of American history. <laughs> so she calls him Chief Thunderpants. I guess she's just talking about how he passes gas. <laughs> in the next segment, it looks like uh, she's dressed up like Betsy Ross. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a glorious day for our new country. We defeated the British, and I have a new baby boy. I'm going to name him Bob Dole. Her outfits here are amazing. Right. Yeah. And we make a, a comment about Bob Dole, right, <laughs> who had lost the presidential election a couple of months before this episode air. That was funny. Everybody used to always joke about how old Bob Dole was. Like, even the Simpsons did it. Everybody, everybody, everybody did that. Didn't he do like a Viagra commercial or something, <gasps> or something like that? like that he, 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 he did know. he did one of he did one of these things which is funny or maybe that was a spoof <laughs> courage something shared by countless americans those who risked their lives those who battled serious illness when i was diagnosed with prostate cancer i was primarily concerned with ridding myself of the cancer but secondly i was concerned about possible post-operative side effects like erectile dysfunction ed often called impotence you know, it's a little embarrassing to talk about ED, but it's so important to millions of men and their partners that I decided to talk about it publicly. And after all, it can be associated with many conditions, including prostate surgery, high blood pressure, diabetes, or even smoking. And the point I want to make is there are many treatments available for ED, so my advice is get a medical checkup. It's the best way to get educated about ED and what can be done to treat it. It may take a little courage, but I've always found that everything worthwhile does. 
You know what's funny is, so in 1996, I was 12, so I didn't really care about politics and such then. But you want to know what the the funny thing I remember about Bob Dole? You know what? I, the only thing I remember from that campaign and that election really is him falling. Y'all remember when he was doing that campaign and he, I think he leaned over to try to shake someone's hand or something and he yeah. fell down and like fell off of the stage. Do you remember that? <laughs> I'll see if I can find a clip and send you to it. It was wild. But I give him credit. I mean, he hopped right back up for a guy his age. He hopped right back up pretty damn well. <laughs> but that was just like... You were but, right. Yeah. He was in a, a Viagra commercial, 1998, right after this. <laughs> <laughs> That's do you remember that video I'm talking about, though, when he fell I, I do. I do remember that, yes. Yeah. That, that like, certainly didn't help the... You know, he had the reputation and the knock against him was that he was an old man <laughs> and, you know, him falling down like that. I don't think that helped his, uh, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. his, his view, put it that way. <laughs> so Bob Dole was an American retired politician, statesman and attorney who represented Kansas in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1961 to 1969 and the U.S. Senate from 1969 to 1996 serving as the Republican leader of the United States Senate from 1985 until 1996. He was the Republican presidential nominee in the 1996 presidential election and the vice presidential nominee in the 1976 presidential election. And he died in December of 2021 at 98 years old. I mean, even Annabelle says he was old even in 96, so <laughs> he led a very long life. I mean, he was in his mid-70s at that point, right? 73. Mm -hmm. I just pulled up that fall on YouTube. I give him a hell of a lot of credit for hopping up the way he did, especially for a guy his age. I mean, hell, if I fell off the stage, I'd probably break my leg or break my arm or something. <laughs> he hopped right back up. But yeah, I think that I don't think that helped his campaign, put it that way. <laughs> and again, you know, I'm giving Christina Applegate a lot of credit. I mean, she's really good, I mean, doing comedy with these characters. Yeah. So the next one is uh, Scarlett O'Hara. Mm -hmm. General Sherman, you've lit more than Atlanta on fire. <laughs> as God is my witness, I will never be horny again. I think everybody knows that was a parody of uh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is a 1939 American epic historical romance film adapted from the 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell. The film was produced by David O. Selznick and directed by Victor Fleming. Set in the American South against the backdrop of the American Civil War and the Reconstruction Era, the film tells the story of Scarlett O'Hara, the strong-willed daughter of a Georgia plantation owner. It follows her romantic pursuit of Ashley Wilkes, who is married to his cousin, Melanie Hamilton, and her subsequent marriage to Rhett Butler. The leading roles are played by Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Leslie Howard, and Olivia de Havilland. And that's true masterpiece of, uh, of Hollywood, mm -hmm. that movie. I mean, it lasts forever. It's like, what, three and a half hours long it's or something really like that? I've never seen it, but it's yeah. really long. I remember in the 80s when it played on television, it would be five hours, I think, with the commercials. <laughs> no, no joke. Yeah, no joke. And then, you know, uh, Kelly's in this space costume. <laughs> and she says, Houston, we have a problem. We can see Uranus. We ha seem to have a <laughs> asteroidal flap. So she's talking about hemorrhoids at the end. I mean, this is pretty funny. Houston! 
Listen! We have a problem! We can see Uranus! We seem to have an asteroidal flap! Hey! Is this thing on? And that's uh, obviously uh, a pun on Apollo 13. Again, another film from the year before, 1995. So oh, yeah. that was, uh, and we've talked about that before. We've talked about Apollo 13 before. And Chris, as we all know, is from Houston. So he hears, he hears that every single week, right? Yeah, you know, I was just about to say, the, the Houston, we have a problem. That phrase is said so much around here. I mean, <laughs> one of our sports teams has a bad game. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, we have a hurricane headed in our direction. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, we have a power outage. Houston, we have a problem. It's a thousand degrees outside today. Houston, we have a problem. You name it. The phrase is used. I have a question, though. Did, did that phrase become popular after the movie or after the actual incident? No, it was after sure. the movie. The movie, huh? Because Tom I, Hanks I'm, said it. <laughs> I feel like... I feel like I remember that earlier in my childhood, but I could be wrong. I mean, so what year... This was 1995, so I would have been... Uh, well, I would have been 11. It, it feels like it feels like I remember that earlier in my childhood, but it's hard to remember. All I know is it, it's it's said all the time here. I mean, there's it, there's hardly a week that I don't that goes by that I, where I don't see some sort of meme here in uh, that's themed, uh, you know, based on something taking place here in Houston, where it says, "Houston, we have a problem." The 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 rockets just lost by 30. Houston, we have a problem, or you know, so, something, you know. <laughs> But the irony is, is that that's ne it was never said in real life. That <laughs> yeah. I thought it was. No, it was like Houston. There's been a problem. Oh, okay. So like, I guess it was after the movie. Then it would yeah. have to have been. Yeah, like I mean, it. I guess you know they changed it for the script to make it sound better, and all of a sudden it just became this uh, catchphrase, you know, yeah. from that time period. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is used constantly. Right. I mean, nonstop. Right. <laughs> and we also have another note from Annabelle here. When Kelly sort of knocks on the uh, on her helmet and says, "Is this thing on?" That's another like TV trope. So, <laughs> so again, we, we have a lot of tropes in this one. And we cut back to the kitchen, and Peg, Kelly, and Bud are sitting at the kitchen table. He still won't make the repairs. He is so stubborn. You should see him on bath night. <laughs> <laughs> I did my best with the Chinese daughter torture. <laughs> All right, somehow we got to come up with the perfect torture for Daddy. Now, what does he find really repulsive and unbearable? <laughs> Why are you looking at me? And we cut back to the kitchen, and Peg and Kelly are sitting at the table, and Bud comes out of the basement. So they're saying that he's so stubborn, and, you know, Kelly says that she did her best Chinese daughter torture, <laughs> uh, which, again, is another malapropism. Uh, you want to talk about that one, Chris? So Chinese water torture is a painful process in which cold water is slowly dripped onto the scalp, forehead, or face for a prolonged period of time, allegedly making the restrained victim insane. This form of torture was first described by... Hippolytus de Marcellus in Italy in the 15th or 16th century. So interestingly enough, I got to tell you, I've never heard of this before. Until really? This. I, I mean, I've heard torture? of 
Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, of course I've heard of waterboarding and that type of thing, but does slowly dripping water onto someone's scalp, uh, is that torturous? I mean. I, I think it's like one of those things that annoys you. Yeah. Like, you know, like after, after a while and then like effectively like, you know, if, you know, think about it. If, if someone keeps annoying you after a while, like you want to let lash out, but again, yeah. the thing continues to do it. So eventually it's like, you know, you, you want to react and you want it to stop, but you can't stop it. So it drives you crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose if, if someone tied me down and restrained me where I couldn't move and they repeatedly slowly dropped water on my scalp, I guess that would be, it, it would sure as hell be annoying. I mean, I can think of worse ways to be tortured, but <laughs> that's, that's just interesting. I, I, I've never heard of that before. So now they try to figure out, like, well, how can they convince Al to make the repairs? And, you know, what does he really find repulsive and unbearable? So in other words, he can take Marcy, he can take Kelly, being stupid, but what can he not take? And the kids look at Peg. <laughs> now, so we cut back to the basement. A couple of years, this stuff really builds up. <sighs> you know, it's not half bad down here. A couple of repairs, I felt like I lived down here. for your conjugal visit. Shut up, Al. You're my bitch now. I thought it was a little disgusting when he put the drill in his ear. Right? Yeah, that was... That, that's, that's another thing I have in my notes. That was nasty and, and dumb, frankly. Like... <laughs> Uh, it's just corny, you know what I mean? But, you know, it was pretty funny. I, I think it's like, you know, he's got his beer, he's got his biggins, and Annabelle here says it's the same cover that was also shown in the Stepford Peg and Requiem for a Chevy Weight 2. Hmm. So they've been using the same prop uh, all, all season. season. <laughs> <laughs> the scene now of when we start hearing, the, you know, the, the horror film music <laughs> is a reference to Nos... No, how do I say this? Nosferatu. Nosferatu, right? Yeah. So Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, is a 1922 silent German expressionist horror film directed by F.W. Moreno and starring Max Schreck as Count Orlock, a vampire who preys on his wife of his estate agent and brings the plague to their town. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like Alex would have been all over this one, right? Yeah, horror movie I mean, fan, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's particularly one that's a century old, so I'm sure he's very famous with it. But I will say my laugh out loud moment is when Peg says it's time for your conjugal visit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, shut up, Al, you're my bitch now. <laughs> oh, 
the horror. <laughs> oh, the horror. We cut now, it's morning. Oh, the horror. <laughs> horror. Saying that line, Alyssa, that you just said, right? Yeah. So that comes from a novella called Heart of Darkness from 1899 by Polish-English novelist Joseph Conrad about a narrated voyage up the Congo River into the Congo Free State in the heart of Africa. Charles Marlowe, the narrator, tells the story to friends aboard a boat anchored on the River Thames. This setting provides the frame for Marlowe's story of his obsession with the successful ivory trader Kurtz. Conrad offers parallels between London and Africa as places of darkness. And it's a line spoken by Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Horror, oh, the horror, the horror. Mm -hmm. huh? No, no, Peg, no, I can't. <laughs> my knees are all skinned, I'm bruised, I got a press on nail stuck in my butt. Relax, Dad. Oh, oh, son, thank God. Son, get me out of this thing before that thing comes back. <laughs> Promise to make the repairs? Okay, son, you win. You win. Well, gee, Dad, Mom left. Teeth marks all over your neck. No, son, that was me. I tried to sever my own juggler. <laughs> Damn plotting. I think my, my favorite part of that when it says Al says he's got a press-on nail stuck in his butt. That was funny. <laughs> what, what I find interesting, right, is um, pretty much Al, after his little romp with Peg, and again, Peg gets a sex point on this. Yeah, six points. So, so you know, we we stopped sort of keeping track of them, and but I mean, really, Peg wins every season anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, crimes against obesity, Chris. Remember, she got a six point there, and then Peg gets another one here. Yep. Again, it's a it's another blowout this year. <laughs> Alex and company stopped counting after the episode where uh, Al and Peg were trying to. Uh, have a baby to uh, <laughs> inherit that money because you remember they they had sex like hundreds of times in that episode that's right and so, the baby I mean, makes money season five yeah i mean it was it, uh, up until that episode you could argue that it was at least competitive i mean i think it's fair to say peg was winning but it was at least uh within you know reasonable competitiveness <laughs> but peg built a insurmountable lead after that episode <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll let you go, but you you got to promise to give me a head start. Well, sure, son. What do you what do you think? I'm going to track you down like a dog and kill you? Sure, a normal father would do that, but we're Bundys. <laughs> oh, God. What does that mean? You're going to eat me? <laughs> One funny line here to me is, uh, you know, when Bud... Uh, is getting ready to free Al, and he says, uh, but you promised you'd give me a head start. And Al says, why, what do you think, I'm going to track you down like a dog and kill you? Right? And he goes, oh, oh God, what does that mean? You're going to eat me? Because <laughs> we're Bundys. That was So that, that, so yeah. that was, you know, uh, a reference to Ted Bundy. Oh, <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's funny. 
Yeah, so Ted Bundy uh, was an American serial killer who kidnapped, raped, and murdered numerous young women and girls during the 1970s and possibly earlier. After more than a decade of denials before his execution in 1989, he confessed to 30 homicides that he committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. The true number of victims is unknown and possibly higher. But Bundy was regarded as handsome and charismatic traits that he exploited to win the trust of victims of society. He would typically approach his victims in public places, feigning injury or disability or impersonating an authority figure before knocking them unconscious and taking them to secluded locations to rape and strangle them. He sometimes revisited his secondary crime scenes, grooming and performing sex acts with the decomposing corpses until putrefaction and destruction by wild animals made any further interactions impossible. He decapitated at least 12 victims and kept some of the severed heads as mementos in his apartment. On a few occasions, he broke into dwellings at night and bludgeoned his victims as they slept. I, I'm a true crime guy, and Ted Bundy is, is one that I've seen a lot of documentaries and books on. He kind of re... Um, I guess you could say re-image the way the public saw and thought about serial killers. You know, normally whenever you think of serial killer, most people think of a, you know, a, a rough looking guy that's maybe right. unshaved or, you know, he has nasty teeth. You know, he doesn't brush his teeth regularly. He doesn't dress well, that type of thing. That's what, that's how most people would think of a, of a serial killer. Ted Bundy was the exact opposite of that. He was, most women would describe him as handsome and charming and well-spoken, you know, the type of all-American boy, so to speak, that you'd want to take home to your parents. Uh, in, in reality, he's <laughs> he's a monster. <laughs> you know, he's one of the worst monsters that we've ever seen. You know, he yeah. was uh, attacking, abducting, killing, raping, and decapitating women. And wasn't it you, Chris, who said to us that the Bundys are named after King Kong Bundy, the wrestler, but right. but the wrestler was named after the serial killer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in, in, in a roundabout way, you could say that the Bundys were named after him since they were named after uh, King Kong Bundy. You know, uh, Michael Moyer and Ron Levitt were both big wrestling fans, so they named the Bundys after King Kong Bundy, who was named after Ted Bundy. So, <laughs> yeah. There's a video, I'll, I'll post it on the episode when it, when it airs, uh, of, of this uh, guy that has a blog, and he was doing a social experiment, and he was on a college campus, and he was showing a bunch of young kids, mainly girls, a picture of Ted Bundy next to, God, I can't even remember who the other person was, whoever the guy was, he was sort of nasty looking, unshaved, not handsome, not not charming looking at all. And asking the girls, who would you feel? But, you know, the, the unattractive guy was a, a normal guy, you know. But they were asking the girls, you know, who would you feel more comfortable with? And across the board, 100% of them were saying, pointing at the picture of Ted Bundy. <laughs> and the, the, the blogger was like, well, actually, this is Ted Bundy. He, you know, killed, raped, and decapitated a bunch of women. So, yeah, Well, I mean, it's one of the things. I mean, you know, human beings sort of like gravitate toward people who they think are attractive right i mean they say it's like you know you, you're, you're going to trust you're going to trust someone mm -hmm. who is attractive to you i mean remember being attractive is very subjective but but that's sort of the way it is you know and 
Remember, like, men in particular, like, right, what, what is it? You know, pretty women make us buy beer and ugly women make us drink beer, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, we're uh, we're all guilty of it. You know, men are no different. I mean, there's – there's you look at, uh, you know, the famous case of Jody Arias and, and um, her, her, uh, her victim. I can't even remember now, sadly. But she's beautiful blonde, stabbed a guy to death, slashed his throat and shot him in the head and then tried to claim self-defense, you know. She's she's the type of girl that any guy would try to talk to at a bar if they saw. <laughs> so <laughs> men are no men are no different. No, bud, I, I don't want to give you a pat on the back. See, son, I I never thought you took much after me. I always thought you were more of a wanker than a Bundy. <laughs> Why? Well, you know, your laziness, your sloping forehead, your ability to catch flies with your tongue. <laughs> what you call a pat on the back? Well, no, 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 son. See, now, you got mad like anybody would, but you got mad and even. See? That makes you a part of the Grand Bundy tradition. Yeah, yeah I'll never forget my old man. Sweet guy. Sold my Schwinn for the price of a drink. <laughs> I was so mad at him. Before he knew it, I enlisted him into the Army. <laughs> By the time he came back from Korea, boy, he was so ticked off. It's a good thing he was in a wheelchair. <laughs> Beautiful story, Dad. The point is, I think that deep down, my dad was proud of me. Well, he said that? Well, not in so many words, but he blinked twice for yes. <laughs> so, you're saying you were proud of me for the way I tortured you? That I am, bud. Guess I learned from the best. Son. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, pal, what do you say we fix this place up together? All right, but let's go get a burger first. Fine! On me! All right! <laughs> There's this one comment that's made where Al, you know, he's actually really proud of Bud for doing that to him because <laughs> he says that, you know, you didn't just get mad, you got even, right? But he says that he always thought that Bud was more of a wanker than a Bundy, right? And, you know, Annabelle loves that just because of the pun for what a wanker is for a British or Australian person, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's also this comment that's made about Bud has a sloping forehead. And that was a... A comment that that was made about Kelly, back all the way back in season one in Johnny Be Gone, the forehead of a dolphin. Well, Judy's having a party for all the kids who count, and I wasn't invited. Well, honey, if they were really your friends, they, they would have invited, invited you. you. Well, thanks a lot, Mom. So what you're trying to tell me is that I have no friends. It's great. Why don't you really cheer me up and tell me again how lucky I am to have inherited the Bundy forehead? <laughs> I can't believe it. I just have to face it. I'm not popular anymore. And I've got the forehead of a dolphin. Hey, that's one smart fish. Oh, I'm ruined. If you remember Kelly in that episode, she wanted to go to a party and she wasn't invited. Yeah. Right? So it was just, you know, interesting to see that. Anyway, now we end the episode, you know, just before they go up the stairs with a comment about Al's dad. And again, we're going to have to talk about continuity on this one. (laughs) You know, Al says that he sold my Schwinn, which is a bicycle, for a price of a drink. I was so mad at him before I knew it. I enlisted him in the Army. When he came back from Korea, 
He was so ticked off, it was a good thing he was in a wheelchair. So in other words, Al would have been less than, let me see, if he was born in 46, he would have been five years old, right? Because <laughs> the Korean War broke out like 1950 and went for three years. And then he's saying that he came back from Korea. Now, we saw Al's dad for the Brandy Brandt Playboy episode, yeah. right? Yep. Like, he wasn't in a wheelchair. And then there's also a flashback in Requiem for Chevy Weight where we see Al's dad's back where he's working on the Dodge. Yep. Right? Definitely not in a wheelchair there. So he's not in a wheelchair there. And we also told that Al had, a, had his job was setting up bowling pins in a bowling alley. Right? So, you know, again, you know, we understand it's a joke, but, I mean, could have been a little bit more consistent. So, <laughs> so there we go. So... They walk up the stairs, they both get electrocuted, and they have a father-son moment, as only Bundys can. <laughs> I thought it was, a cute, it was a nice, sweet scene between father and son at the very end. I liked it. You don't get those very often on the show. That is true. I mean, because, you know, he's like, I, I never thought you took much after me. I'm like, aw. Thank <laughs> you. So we'll be right back with our ratings in just a minute. No, ma'am, we'll be right back to wrap up this week's review. Be sure to join their Facebook group page for all the podcast news and updates. Be sure to subscribe to them on the Apple Podcast app and please leave a review telling them what you think of the show. To subscribe to their YouTube channel, just go to channels and search up Married with Children Podcast. Join their Patreon and support your favorite podcast with a small monthly donation. You can email them at marriedwchildrenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for checking out this review. And we're back. So, Chris, how many shock collars are you going to wear for your episode rating this week? Well, I I feel like I'm maybe going to upset or disappoint some people, but frankly, I don't... I don't particularly like this episode, <laughs> and I'll talk about a, a few of the reasons why. But for, first of all, let me talk about the things I did like, because there were a few things I liked. I actually liked the, the cold start uh, of the episode. I felt like the, the jokes hit really hard there. Uh, in fact, I liked the cold start better than the, the rest of the episode, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, the opening line, uh, you know, the sex jokes between Al and Peg, I laughed out loud. That was so funny. You know, I tried to use the ATM card. I stuck it in. It spit it out. It laughed at me. That was hilarious. Kelly's line about being in awe, you know, awe. Illinois finally recognized the sacred bond between you and your hand to Bud. <laughs> I laughed so hard with that. That was that was pretty funny. Uh, so the episode got off to a great start, I thought. I guess I just didn't like the idea of the housing authority <laughs> confining Al to the basement. I just... I just thought that was ridiculous, to be honest. And then they confounded it with some of the things that I don't like about season 11. So you already have a kind of a weird plot, but whatever. You know, you, you could say every, every single plot in every episode is weird. You know, we could play that game. But they compounded the problem with some of the things I don't like about season 11. Al was too dumb in this episode, uh, you know, shocking himself repeatedly. And yes, I realize Al's been electrocuted many times in the past, but at the end of, of High IQ, you know, we all love that episode. Al walks up 
and gets shocked one time. This episode, he's sitting there getting shocked over and over and over and over again like a lab rat. You know what I mean? Like, even Kelly was looking down on him like (laughs) Bud and Kelly are looking down there. I don't know. I just didn't find that funny. I just found it to be dumb, really. And speaking of dumb, you know, as we already said, Kelly is too dumb in this. And really, by and large, in, in all of season 11, but in particular, this episode. She's walking around pretending to have a hundred dollars, and I realized she was, you know, doing improv or improvisation rather. <laughs> but I don't know; it was just too corny for me. Al was too goofy and corny. The drill bit in his ear—I mean, I don't know. I agreed that you know the the setup for the the or the uh, rather the, the closing there with the nice father son moment uh, that was pretty funny. And that, or that was pretty nice, I should say. It is nice to see Alan have those, Alan Bud have those moments from time to time. They're rare, but then they go and do the same joke that they've already done about ten times already with them getting electrocuted. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, if I'm harping too much, I'll, I'll say Luigi. The the episode that I felt like was the bottom of the barrel was Barely Men last year. Uh, that one was cringeworthy at times. This one is nowhere near as bad as that. But there just was too much corniness and goofiness for for the vast majority of the episode. So I'm going to give it a 2.5 collars out of 5. And I feel like that's being generous, but that's my rating. Okay. I said, look, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, and I respect that. Okay. All right, Alyssa, so how many electric shock collars are you going to wear for your episode rating on this one? I, I agree with Chris on some things about the episode. I do think it was kind of cartoony and corny, but I thought there were some good lines and I think that might've saved it. <laughs> so I would probably give it a three and a half. I laughed out loud at a lot of parts. I haven't watched it in a while, but I, it was funny to me. This is one of the ones from season 11 that I do remember because it was, it, the, the lines were really funny. I didn't really care for the Kelly uh, improv stuff. I thought that was kind of lame. But it is, you know, it is what it is. I thought that it was, you know, whenever I can laugh at an episode, there's episodes where I don't laugh at all. You know what I mean? And this one, I laughed a lot. So I think I'm just going to give this one a three and a half. Okay. Well, that's fair. Okay. So three and a half for Alyssa. So for myself, well, I'm not a big fan of season 11 in general. Mm-hmm. And um, we are actually right at the midpoint of season 11 with episode 12. So since season one, each season of Married with Children, so seasons two through 10 had 26 episodes. Season 11 had only 24. Oh. So this being season 12, this is the middle, we're in the middle of the season. Now, if you go in production order, production code order, this was technically the fourth episode produced shot for season 11 but it was (laughs) aired much later than anticipated because they just jumbled up the order and we've talked about that uh, already writing generally i felt like it got too cartoonish this one was borderline to me because it is some of the jokes i mean it is the same jokes you know there's the al sex jokes it's the marcy and you know kelly being stupid and bud being uh pathetic But even though it was the same material as we've seen for the last few seasons, I thought the writing was very good. And that, to me, is what saved the episode. Mm -hmm. Because, Alyssa, you talk about the laugh out loud 
aspect of the show. Mm-hmm. So for me, the fact that I'm watching this episode, and I watched this episode twice before we started uh, recording, I just found myself laughing for 22 minutes each time. So I spent 44 minutes today laughing. <laughs> and I want to go back to something that Michael Moy said uh, in, in our interview with him. And he's also said in other interviews in the past, the point of Married with Children was to sit down on a Sunday night, although it wasn't playing on a Sunday night uh, in season 11, (laughs) sit down, leave reality for that 30 minutes and just laugh. Mm -hmm. And Steve Faber and Bob Fishers who have the writing credit on this did their job. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I laughed. I enjoyed the corniness when sometimes I don't. Right. I mean, uh, Chris and I are going to be reviewing the episode next week, and I've already told Chris it's not one of my favorites, <laughs> although it is his favorite, so I think we might be swapped, <laughs> and maybe that like sort of evens us out, and that's okay, but I'm going to give this one a four, Okay. All right, fair enough. because I, like I said, I laughed my ass off. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Peg coming down with the conjugal visit. You know, just saying, okay, like, shut up, Al. You're my bitch now. I mean, that is, you just howl laughing. Right. So I appreciate that. And like I said, it just puts a smile on my face. <laughs> it's probably, and I think you're right, Chris, this is not one of the more memorable episodes of uh, season 11. Right. Uh, there are others that are. I'd say probably the Stepford Peg, Crimes Against Obesity, definitely. Yeah. Even a Bundy Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. I think, is, is memorable just for the fact of the pie. But this was one of those episodes where I think if I wanted to, and you always say this to me, Chris, it's like there are certain episodes that you want uh, you know, to show someone, like to get a feel for Married with Children. Yeah. And I know that this might be, again, since you gave it a two and a half rating, but I would feel comfortable showing someone who's never seen the show this episode and just to get the reaction, and I feel that that person would probably laugh their ass off at the jokes. Yeah, yeah, they might. Yeah, they might. I, I don't. It's hard to exactly pinpoint why I don't like this one. It just like it just feels a little bit too goofy for me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and that's fair because you know what, Chris? Usually it's the reverse. I'm usually saying that things are too goofy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so in this case, it's like we have differing opinions, and that's okay. Yeah. And you know what? To our listeners out there. We want to hear your opinions. So please comment, you know, on our YouTube channel or on one of our podcast streaming channels. Like, let us know what you think. Or on our Facebook page. I really want to know, like, what do you think about this? There was a lot of material. We got through it. (laughs) In less than two hours. Yeah, yeah, a lot quicker. Well, it'll probably be two hours once it's fully produced, right? (laughs) But uh, we, we got through it. But anyway. So, Alyssa, so thank you again for joining us, as always. Um, I'm so sad that it's, like, the last season. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we have, uh, again, another uh, 12 weeks, and we'll have uh, a season wrap-up show and a series wrap-up show, and we still want to see what's going to happen with the animated series. Can I ask about the animated series? Because I don't know much about it. So I know Ed O'Neill's in it, right? The entire cast. So does anybody know in the starts? No. The only thing we know is that the family, so the Bundy family, so that's uh, 
you know, Ed, Katie, Christina, mm-hmm. and David uh-huh. will be doing the voice characters. Okay. And that's, and that's it. We don't know if uh, Amanda Bierce will be playing Marcy or if Ted McGinley will be, you know, doing Jefferson or perhaps uh, uh, David Garrison doing Steve Rhodes. Oh, we that'd be know. so awesome. Yeah. We, we don't know. I mean, we did have our uh, bonus uh, episode that we did with the great Alex, where we talked about what we want and what we don't want in an really? animated series. Yep. You should okay. check that out. That was our last episode of season 10. Okay. Uh, so you, should, you should check that out if you haven't, uh, you know, to our listeners. So we don't know yet. Hey, Alyssa, one thing I will let you know is mm-hmm. that uh, I, I've been in touch with uh, Harold Sylvester, Juliet Tablack, and Jennifer Lyons. Of course, mm-hmm. he played Griff, Amber, and Ariel. Right. And all of them are going to try to throw their name in the hat to uh, try to be involved in the project. None of them have had heard of it. You know, we just heard of this, what was it, two or three months ago now? Right. And as soon as we heard, I reached out to all of them, and all of them were like, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. So. That would be great if, if all of them could, you know, as as many of the classic characters as possible to be to be involved in one in one way or another. You know, the No Ma'am guys and mm-hmm. um, you know Miranda Veracruz, De La Hoya Cardinal, and so on and so forth. But, I, uh, yeah. I, you know, when I first heard it, I I was excited. I think that's cool. I mean, I love cartoons. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So <laughs> you know, I love Family Guy. I mean, and it's that kind of crude humor that I, you know that I love. So I yeah, think it's great. Are we gonna? podcast about it well yeah well what we don't know i mean yeah. i guess you know we talked about that before the thing is what we don't know is depending on the form we may or may not be able to continue our podcast format the way we've been doing it right. Sony pictures might not appreciate it oh yeah since you know we're reviewing a 30 year old show at right this point, you right. know so for something that's new we might have to take a different approach to it mm-hmm. so we will see but stay tuned, and uh, yeah, that's uh, as 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 uh, things uh, develop, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I think it's great that the whole cast is. I mean, most of the, you know, from what we know, the whole cast is coming back. The whole family. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so Alyssa, again, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and we encourage all of our fans to check out her podcast when TV was great. Yep. And stay tuned next week. So next week on the Married with Children podcast, Chris and I will be reviewing Trash, (laughs) T-R-A-S-H. So Jefferson has joined the National Guard. He tells Alan Griff of the benefits, for one weekend per month, one gets to party with a bunch of guys and get paid for it. Of course, you have to pass basic training first, but even that has a benefit. One does not have to go to one's regular job, but the boss still has to pay the salary. Alan Griff suddenly feel the urge to serve their country. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed our review this week and tune it again next week. As always, same Bundy time, same Bundy channel. (laughs) 